Welcome to Tripping Over the Barrel, a series that highlights the unique personalities within the oil and gas industry and the stories they have to share with your hosts and lead storytellers, Tilo and Dr. Funkenstein. Ladies and gentlemen, Luke Wallace! (laughs) Luke Wallace, what's going on, my man? Dr. Funk, I appreciate you having me and inviting me on your show. Man, I always love the 10 minutes or so that we get to rap a little bit before starting the pod. Sometimes it's somebody I don't know. Sometimes it's somebody Tim doesn't know. And we always get into to really fun stuff really quickly, including what we shouldn't get into. So that's right. We'll, we'll leave all that to the side. But um, honor, pleasure to have Luke Wallace on here, the uplift king <laughs> in oil and gas. Um, is, that a, is that a title you're giving him or does he actually have that title? You know, what is your title? Well, I said you could place it as uh, the uplifter just because uh, there's a, a great album by the band 311, which is probably not pretty popular among the newer millennials in the industry. But a lot of us older guys that are like 35 and up probably know who that band is. And that was a great album that they left out. Uh, well, I want to tell you, the 50 plusers have no idea. A 311. <laughs> so they had a short run. I feel like the, they were hot. They had a bunch of jams when I was in college. And then I think the lead singer died young right and that derailed them nope mm. totally wrong they've been a, a band that's actually been together for 30 years i was up. thinking of sublime i was thinking yeah. of Sublime. see this isn't a music podcast you know what I mean? <laughs> we're these like oil and gas yeah. sales we'll, guys we'll know, oil and gas all right all right stick to new england sports and oil and gas i mean come stay, on stay in our lanes um awesome to see you last weekend tim at the digital wildcatters crawfish boil i thought Man, what a great a party that was ton of fun came in fourth place in the cornhole tournament didn't expect that so didn't get to meet as many people but felt really good to beat people in cornhole oh you and sean forbes did it well of course we know who was the ringer in that one who yeah come on (laughs) (laughs) anyways so uh back here in denver feels like maybe we're finally heading into spring after it's been ridiculously snowy for way too long and uh got mr luke wallace on the podcast. So Luke, I want to just jump into it and have you give us a little bit of your background. Um, you know, talk about what's brought you all over the map with oil and gas and, and what you do as a up and comer here in Denver. Sure. Um, so I've been in the industry 12 years now. Um, I would oil and gas kind of runs through my family's veins. Uh, my grandfather was actually a chef in the Navy and, uh, he was a chef on offshore Louisiana platforms. So he was the most loved guy on the platform offshore, obviously. I can Uh, vouch for that. I, I've been on two platforms offshore. That guy was King. He owned, if you walked in to his galley and you weren't dressed appropriately shirt off or something like that, they can kick your ass. That's (laughs) they rule the, they rule the platform. So it's, it, it traces back a couple of generations within my family. Um, my father was an oil and gas chemistry degree background from a small uh, university out of Louisiana called Nickel State. Um, they kind of, they call it Harvard on the Bayou, uh, below New Orleans. Great, great area. Uh, <laughs> I think that's was, only there they call it that. Yeah, exactly. And that's what he, Rice thinks too. That's what Rice says. My father in law, my father worked also as a, rig hand, you know, making beds and things, uh, going through college, helped pay his way through college, got out of college and got into the oil and gas industry, uh, worked on the K 
chemical side, worked on the artificial lift side, which kind of exposed me to the artificial lift business. Um, and then I had an uncle that was a Vietnam vet who worked as a, a, a foreman, you know, on the offshore platforms. And then my uncle, who was a successful accountant and finance guy with Shell. So uh, it was kind of meant to be to try to, you know. So you, you can't escape it. Exactly. Right. It's uh, it's kind of like been in the family for a while. And uh, but I'll be honest, uh, I went to uh, coming out of college. Uh, I wasn't super set on what I wanted to do like most people. And if anybody tells you coming out of college, unless they have a specific niche that they're focused on that they're going to get into, they're probably lying to you. Um, but like most people in college, I was, uh, I had an idea of what I wanted to do. I got a business degree from Texas tech and marketing and finance. Guns up, guns up. Is that, is that what it is? Guns yeah. up. Let's go. Guns up. No gang yeah. today. We're going go guns up. Patrick Mahomes. Yeah. Patrick Mahomes is the best thing that's come out of Texas tech and, <laughs> and, uh, uh, a couple other things, of course, um, we got some legacy coaches there um, that came out of uh, Texas Tech. But, you know, you can throw all the funny jokes. We, we've heard it like, you know, the last 12 years of being out of college. Nothing new. I haven't heard out of Texas Tech jokes. Right. Because uh, Texas <laughs> collegiate is uh, is a big deal. Not so much when you move up to the north. <laughs> um, but I've heard it all. Um, but came out of college. Uh, I. I saw, so they started up a program at Texas Tech called the um, Oil and Gas Land Management Program. And that was a year before I left. So I wasn't able to get into it. Or if I did, I would have to spend another two years in college. But that kind of drew my attention because I had friends that joined into it and they were starting to come out of college making like, you know, $8,500,000. And I said, wow, that's, uh, that's pretty attractive, right? Someone that's 24, 23, 24 years old. Uh, so that kind of caught my attention. But when I came out, I actually didn't go right into oil and gas. Uh, I got a job through Texas Tech working at a uh, automotive company called Group One as a training as a finance manager. Actually, I was I was three months into the job and it was it was pretty average like training program. You know, it wasn't like anything exciting, but I had to have something coming out of college in order to make ends meet. So I took it. And within three months, I got uh, networked in through my father uh, in the oil and gas industry. Had, a to couple happen. guys. Had to happen at some point. Yep, exactly right. And three months in, I uh, I doubled my salary by accepting hey oil and gas. And I said, okay, yeah, I can do this. I don't even care what What year saying. was this? What year were you? It's like 2012 or something like that? 2009. 2009. 2009. Yeah. yeah, that was that was right. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. So been in the industry now for 12 years. Um, I was able to break in. Uh, in 2009 with Weatherford International. And there's a couple of uh, artificial lift legends who my father helped me network with. And uh, that one is, st- both are actually still in the industry, Mark Lane and Mike Yankee. Um, both I've heard those names. Both really great people, really smart guys, kind of artificial lift, legacy, uh, gurus, um, and got a lot of respect. So shout out to those guys well- for. Hold on a second. I, I, I got it. I got to admit something. I got to admit something. I don't know what artificial lift really is. Like it's a term that people use all the time, but it just seems so vague as so many oil and gas terms are. So can you just explain to people with a, you know, a very short description, what does artificial lift mean? Sure. Um, artificial lift is used in every oil and gas well at some point in its life. Uh, It's an upstream sector uh, niche. And what we do is 
after we're done completing fracking and flowing the well naturally, as the well loads up, you have to be able to continue to produce that well some way, somehow, right? Artificial lift is that answer. And as the products that help continue to do that process, there's seven forms of artificial lift. Uh, there's the most common, right? Pumping units. You see the pump jacks all over West Texas and all over everywhere. Eventually, uh, a well is going to go either on pumping unit or a plunger lift system. So you got pumping units, plunger lift, gas lift, hydraulic jet pump systems, capillary, PC pumps, which stands for progressive cavity pumps. And then you have your last, which is ESPs. There's seven forms that you can choose from and all are prospective applications dependent on the well's uh, characteristics. Fantastic. Man, consider wow. yourself educated. You just rattle Holy off. Cow. There are seven. I, was, I thought the, the lecture was going to start on that one. I couldn't answer <laughs> anything like that about anything. I mean, that was... <laughs> That was I, tremendous. So, I was waiting. To, I was waiting for him to leave one off. As I wait a minute, he's going to forget wow. jet pumps. Nope, but there they are. <laughs> so, but when you say like gas lift, like I picture gas, it's like I mean, can you even really see it, right? And then how do you lift that? Right. So, so wow. gas, the gas lift. So it's it's really it's, it's kind of a funny evolution, right? So um, now two my two primary forms of artificial lift that's most commonly used in horizontal and uh, unconventional wells is gas lift and ESPs. And the reason why you gas lift is because when you're gas lifting artificial lift, artificial lift wise, you are injecting high pressured, uh, using a compressor on surface gas down the backside annulus, and you're flowing it through a, a valve that opens and closes off a specific pressure. And you're injecting natural gas or sales. Uh, you're pulling from a sales line somewhere in the field. And you're re-injecting that gas down hole in order to manipulate the gas to liquid ratio and the mm -hmm. tubing string to lighten the tubing string uh, fluid and condensate in order to take pressure off the reservoir down hole in order for it to flow more efficiently. Yeah, no, I mean, that makes more sense. And, and you, do you always see some level of, of uplift by, by leveraging these artificial lift solutions? Like, or does it ever not, not actually work out? Yeah, if you're using a company that knows what they're doing. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, uh, that's it's very important to have, make sure that you have people that know what they're doing, right? Um, we do uh, engineering design down hole, and then you execute that engineered design by whatever artificial lift method you're using. And if it's working efficiently because people know what they're doing, then you usually have happy customers. If you don't, then it's the circle of life on the service side, and eventually you get new business, right? Yeah, so I see you you started with with Weatherford as you said and you got some good tutelage, but you know, you I guess you started out in the field with Weatherford, I would guess, right? Out actually out uh installing and and uh, designing the uh the artificial lift systems, is that right? That's correct. So, uh when I started out, like I said, I was green, didn't even know what a gas lift system was. Uh I started out in Houston, Texas. I thought I was the king of the world because I had a desk job north of uh, Houston off JFK Boulevard. And I had a nice little desk. It was all clean. I was learning the ropes. And then within like three to six months after getting a townhome in Midtown, thinking I was the, you know, on cloud nine, they said, Hey, uh, you're moving down to Victoria, Texas. And I knew here's your white truck. Always love <laughs> to hear that. Right. <laughs> exactly. Here's your white truck. Your, uh, your 1999 Chevy 2500. Um, you get to move down there and you're going to be working with our ops team. Uh, so 
I moved down there. I didn't even know really what the Eagleford was. Uh, I knew that it was some type of formation, but I spent the next couple of years down there in Victoria, Texas. I was familiar with Victoria because I had family, uh, a brother-in-law that lived uh, in Quero who had some uh, land out that way. So I'd visited once before, but moving from the big city. Yep. Moving from uh, Houston to Victoria uh, was quite the change. I'd never lived in a small town. So Oh, I got to explain what I just yeah, was did. That, was that, I just, did you say I did, like a high school team name? Yeah, yeah I did. <laughs> so Quero, small, what, two or three A school and their high school mascot are the Gobblers. I just had to throw that the out Gobblers? There. Yeah, Quero Gobblers. I, I need to like, look up this mascot. Like uh, they're turkeys. Turkey, yep. Oh. But from there, I got a lot of good uh, operational experience in the field, uh, engineering designs, troubleshooting, um, and it really set the basis for my you know career in artificial lift. I worked with a fantastic group of operations folks down there, a young team that just like worked day and night. Uh, we were sleeping in flea bag motels down in Carrizo Springs, Laredo, you know, all the, the Brownsville, like <laughs> it was quite the experience and it was blowing and going. I mean, this is when the Eagleford was like really just being discovered and uh, utilized and produced at a very high rate. So I spent two years down there. Um, I had an opportunity to pop up the, for business development uh, to build gas lift in the Rockies uh, based in Denver. I came up here, interviewed for it, got the job within Weather- Weatherford, excuse me. And um, I did, you know, when I came up to the Rockies, it was kind of funny because all the guys that I worked with uh, were pumping unit focused up here in the Rockies. Sure. And- and the reason why they, pumping units were prevalent is because they were a very high revenue generating product for the company Weatherford at the time. Mm. Um, and then when I came up as a gas of, you know, expert, or they called me an expert. I certainly wasn't an expert at the time. And I don't consider my expert still because uh, always learning. You know right? more than Jeremy. <laughs> Jeremy. And I got a funny story about that actually for y'all, uh, but <clears throat> came up we here. Like and stories. They, they, they all, they all kind of laughed about it. And, uh, now if you looked in the Rockies <laughs> 10 years later or nine years later that I've been up here, every well is going either on gas up or ESP right away. So I guess I had the last laugh. Oh yes, indeed. As long um, as they keep drilling here. Um, and then so I, I was, we've had, we've had some, I just want to go back to your first early days in the field real quick. So, I mean, I know we, we had Colin on what episode three and we talked about three the greenhorn out in the field, but that was really, you know, kind of rigs and frack jobs. You know, what was it like being green kind of, you know, in the post post drilling world of artificial lift? Is it the same type of uh, you you got the green hard hat and everybody giving you a hard time or is it, uh, you know, just business as usual? What was that like being first out in the field? Um, you're learning quick and you're getting roughed up by a lot of consultants because they could see that you were inexperienced for sure. Um, you, you learned, if you didn't learn quick, then you were out of there. You, you weren't going to be working ops and you'd probably get, you know, put into some other position that was just not as exciting. Right? I mean, I couldn't tell you exactly what they would do or maybe even let you go, but, uh, being Were there any good new guy pranks that they pull on you? Oh man. <laughs> yeah. But I don't know if I can uh, disclose those. <laughs> on the podcast. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, working as a green, uh, young operations, uh, engineer and operations field guy, it, you know, you had to either learn it or you were going to get ran over. And for example, one time I had a, my first install, I was off, I messed up my KB, uh, tally, you know, uh, giving the installation report to a 
consultant for Newfield at the time. And, you know, sometimes you have good uh, company men, sometimes you have bad company men. It's just, you know, whatever mood they're in that day, right? (laughs) Well, this guy, I was four hours away and he claimed that I didn't do the installation right, but it was correct. And I drove all the way back to location to correct it and show him how it was uh, correct. And, you know, you run into situations like that, but those are the kind of things that make your heart drop as a as a green worm out in the oil and gas industry and you grow from it. Right. And you gain confidence from it. Absolutely, man. No, I like, I like that. So tell me a little bit about coming to Denver, right? I mean, that's, that's where our paths cross. Thanks. Victoria to to Denver. That's a big, that's a big change. Yeah. I mean, we'll, we'll get to the timeline, I think, but I mean, you and I met in Denver via Alex Flournoy. I think, I think we actually met the night of the prop One Twelve vote. Um, where we were hanging out and having some drinks. And um, I noticed, you know, you in particular for your young age at the time really comported yourself well in sort of with all different people and and all different, you know, stages of of their lives and careers. But I think one of the things that I noticed about you is the deep understanding of oil and gas, even beyond just artificial lift. Right. So did you take classes in college or did you feel like you picked things up from your family when you were at home and, you know, over the holidays and things like that? (laughs) You know, it's honestly a testament to my father who like it sends me three articles to read just about every morning, (laughs) oil and gas related or, you know, state of the union, what's going on in the world. And that's kind of just evolved into my own. I guess, curiosity to be able to keep up with the industry and kind of follow the evolution of it. Because if you're not on top of it, you'll get left behind. Uh, And if you're not the best at what you do, then, you know, in this environment now, you'll definitely get left behind. But that's kind of the, that's kind of how it all evolved. It's just self-awareness of your other aspects of the industry. So you can have some, you know, well-rounded, at least opinions and understanding of what you're doing. Right. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. So, so you, you settle in up here in Denver and I think you got married a couple of years ago, got a young kid and we're Instagram friends. And if I recall, your pictures were sort of normal. Hey, I got this kid. We're doing this here. And then all of a sudden during COVID, I see all these pictures, like they're being taken from a mountain home <laughs> or something like that. So what are you doing? Are you living in the mountains these days? No, no, no. Uh, we, um, so my wife and I, we've been together for 15 years. We met very young. I got really, I got lucky. I got found one of the good ones. We've been married for nine. We just had our first kid uh, about three and a half months ago. Feel very fortunate for that. Congratulations. Um, um, been a very big learning experience for us, as I'm sure you know, Funk. I don't know about you, Tim, but for me, it has been. Um, we moved to Denver nine years he ago. Who knows? We, we moved nine years ago from uh, up to Denver. I spent six years here. Uh, and then after doing uh, a quality job of what they asked me to do in developing a product line, they asked me if I was interested in going to Malaysia. Um, so we made the plunge and to move overseas. And I always had a desire to get back over there. But to back back to what you were saying, the COVID thing, whenever everybody went into quarantine, we're, we our family have a place in the mountains. And, uh, you know, we spent a month or two up there um, just, you know, getting away from the city because the vibe was pretty weird at the time and everything shut down. Yeah, I couldn't, I can't blame you at all, but it looked, looked absolutely beautiful, stunning Colorado, you know, not the same views that you get in Victoria, Texas. No. How about no. Malaysia? How about Malaysia though? So, um, and we've talked about this a few times. Like, I think you said eventually you want to move over there and like settle 
over there, right? So tell us about your experience, like working and doing things from a personal enjoyment standpoint. Yeah, so I um, I sought out, uh, I there was an opportunity online. I always combed Weatherford's site because Weatherford at the time had still had like 40, 50,000 employees. So requisitions were always opening on their uh, on their internal uh, network. And I had always had a desire to move back overseas or to try to get overseas uh, specifically, whether it was, I didn't care where it was, but I always had an affinity to try to go to back to Southeast Asia where I was born in Singapore. And it came up and I was able to get in touch with the right people. Um, they kind of interviewed me for the position and I got the opportunity to go over there and be a regional te- uh, sales manager for Southeast Asia based in Kuala Lumpur uh, for four product lines uh, nice. out of the seven for artificial lift that Weatherford provided. That's awesome. Wow. So what was that like being a, I mean, I guess, you know, I've been overseas quite a few times and, you know, but actually being based over there doing sales for the first time or your regional sales manager, were you actually going out to Petronas and other companies doing the sales work or how did that work? What was that like? Right. So it was a very, uh, is very different than what we deal with here in the lower 48, right? You're dealing with national oil companies and big tenders rather than, you know, you might get the next pad here in the U.S. Uh, kind of deal where you can win new work consistently here and there. It's all about getting in with the right people, knowing the right uh, local vendors uh, or agents, and making sure that you have a company that can either bundle or provide the best product in order to win these tenders. So it was very different from what I was used to. And uh, Weatherford was going through a lot of transition at the time. And I knew that, but I still wanted to go because of the experience. And, um, it, you know, we were kind of treading water over there at the time, but I, I enjoy that challenge. And uh, we were managing. Uh, I, I got to go in and continually manage a tender for Petronas um, with the gas lift system. So that was great learning experience. And I had a great little team around me that was, you know, multicultural differently, you know, all local Malays, um, that I worked with and other yeah, and, and other people from Scotland and other people from Australia and Great nice. Britain all throughout, like, you know, just, I was the only, uh, person from the U S so, um, you know, being a minority for the first time in my life, you know, from where I came from was a shock and moving to a Muslim country, was totally different than what I was used to. You know, you wake up at seven in the morning because you're on the equator. Sun comes up at seven and it sets <laughs> at seven every single day. It's 90 degrees. It's hot. It's humid. There's not a lot of change, yep. Yep. but uh, it was, it was change for us because we certainly weren't used to it. No, you know, one of the, one of the really, this is a really a funny aside and that's not funny, but it, an aside, <laughs> one thing I did not expect when you travel to Southeast Asia, you just see a satellite dish and it's pointed straight up in the sky. We're used to, in our little temperate Angled. zone at a certain angle, but they're pointing like 75 almost, degrees, right? Yeah, just straight up. It's like, and it's like, you just don't think about that until you see it. Oh. It's just being on, on the equator, you know? Yeah. yeah. Oh yeah, man. That's, that's awesome. So Luke, this is, this is interesting. Certainly. So you were at a point where you're ready to travel. Did you speak the language? What are they speaking? Kuala Lumpur. The uh, local language is Bahasa. Okay. Did you learn how to speak it? <laughs> very little of it. <laughs> I mean, I knew, I knew words and phrases to be able to communicate uh, jokingly with my team that I worked with, uh, to, but not fluently. But you could get by there, just speak with English, no problem. Yes. 
All right, so you you come back and now you're with uh, with Tally and Premier. I mean, you're listed with two. So can you go over, you know, basically what you're doing, what you guys do? Yeah, sure. When I moved back from Malaysia with uh, Weatherford, I uh, I was approached by a a smaller service company that was private equity backed startup named Epic Lift Systems. Um, their oh, leadership. Yeah, I remember their, that's when I met you. Yep. Yeah. It, the, their leadership approached me and I had never worked for a small, I had worked for Weatherford for almost nine, nine years at that point. Um, I, I liked what I heard. I um, had never joined a real small company where everybody just kind of communicated on a regular basis openly like they did and worked synchronized together. And I made the plunge, went over with them. We, I helped them build up. They were focused on one of the product lines called plunger lift out of artificial lift. And they were trying to build up their gas lift division. That's why they brought me in. I helped them uh, build up the company in about two years and they sold it right before the, uh, the crash uh, not in 2019. And, uh, you know, they made a, a masterful exit to a company called Tally. Uh, and Tally took us on uh, to be added on to their artificial lift group. And then eventually, Tally ended up buying another company called Priority Energy Services, uh, who is also part of the artificial lift group. And what Epic focused on was plunger lift manufacturing and Priority focused on gas lift manufacturing. They merged those two together because they were leaders in their prospective niches. And it was like a perfect marriage uh, and a good execution on Tally's part to add those onto their production segment. It's, you know, I've, and I don't know a whole lot about this. My engineering is still a little weak. The uh, worst class I took was uh, was on uh, gas lift in school. But uh, <laughs> the uh, should have said a, that sooner. <laughs> well, there's a newer uh, hybrid of plunger and gas lift. You know, plunger assisted gas lift and gas assisted plunger lift. Do you, are you guys getting into that game? Are you guys do you guys playing that now that you've got both sides of that? Yeah. So the application uh, is called Gapple or PAGL, however you want to pronounce the acronym, gas-assisted plunger lift. Uh, it's where you assist the gas lift system once the well's uh, you know, depleted in order to catch the fluid fallback in the tubing with the plunger lift system uh, to try to optimize and make your well more efficient on the production standpoint. So there you go, Jeremy. We're continuing your education. No, I'm, I'm taking it all in right now. It's interesting, and it, it is a must, right, because – I see some of the decline curves on these wells and anything you can do to flatten that thing out, even just a little bit, right. You'll, you'll take it. That's, that's oil and gas for you. But Tim, I wanted to ask you this because one of the things Luke was talking about is something you and I have talked about a lot of the business that you've done actually over the past six or seven years is tenders and international contracts with the Petronas and and others uh, with OVS. So tell me about it. I mean, Certainly, tell me about how different that is from your standpoint, from a, a software vendor perspective, dealing with you know U.S. operators and then international Petronases of, of the world. It is the the tender system is very frustrating, especially if you're sitting from afar. If you're, I've always told the guys that I work with that if you're surprised that a tender shows up on your desk, hey, there's a new tender. More than likely you've already lost the tender because you're, you know, you're just two bids and a buy. You're one of the two bids. Yeah. Yeah. You're col- what we used to call column fodder, column B or column C. So, you know, you really want to be column A. So what, you know, uh, what Luke was saying is you want to get in and know these guys and work with these guys and know that maybe help even 
know what's going to be in the tender ahead of time, or maybe even influence it. So that's really the art of working with these tenders. But it is, it's maddening in some places where, you know, like the Middle East, for instance, an American company competing in a tender, and you've got some really low labor group from India bidding. And it, they, yeah. they give you this, here's the technical portion, and here's the, the business portion. And it, you can win the technical, but when the business comes in, boom. And so it can get very frustrating. And now uh, I've seen a lot of these lately where they've got in-country value. So I'm if sure. you've got it's people who, if you keep that money in the country, you get extra extra points towards a tender. It, but it's a, yep. you really need, if you're going to compete in those tender world, you really need a group of people that all they do is build tenders for you. Yep. Um, it's it's difficult, but we, we have to because the, the numbers are right. Sometimes we have to go compete in tenders. I've got two or three working right now. Hmm. Yeah, you lock in the tender, you're in for three years, you know, typically on average. So, uh, nice. Yeah, it's a, uh, it can make or break uh, uh, companies out there for sure internationally. Yeah, oh, that's, that's fantastic. Definitely, def- definitely different insight where, I mean, most of my business has been here domestic US and that we call that an RFP and that happens maybe 5% of the time. Right. Yeah. So yeah, you see it right. a lot like in, in government contracts, of course, and yeah. all that. You know, so there's a lot of sales. I mean, I mean, heck, that's the construction companies that around here, that's just what they have, right? They have a tender group. They All they do is just respond to tenders and they can whip them out constantly. You know, for us, we're used to doing direct sales and then a tender comes in and you have to stop everything and get everything put together and send it out. Yeah, well, that's, it's interesting. So, All right, Luke, so you've been doing, you've been doing business development, going out and doing sales. You've got to have some crazy, funny you know, sales stories of weird things have happened, maybe going out to the field, trying to do sales or something, but, you know, give us your best sales failure or at least or sales stumble that you've been in on. Hashtag sales fails. <laughs> um, uh, so fun, I guess, I guess it, it's kind of funny and embarrassing at the same time. Uh, when I moved That's up, what we like. When, when I moved up here to Denver, I, I went up to uh, give my first big presentation for Samson Resources a technical presentation on gas lift. Um, never been to Casper, Wyoming. Uh, and I had a group of 20, 30 people in there. Most of them were, you know, field level um, people that deal with the, the systems on a daily, day-to-day basis. And I had engineers also that were sitting in the back um, listening in on this conversational. You know, I'm going through my presentation. I'm fairly nervous. It's my first big one, right? And I have a cheeky engineer in the background who's got more experience than me that's just like throwing all these like super technical questions at me. Yeah, that's <laughs> the stump the Trump guy. Yeah. Stump the Trump guy. Yeah. I love that. I, I've seen it happen too on the other side. And it's like, oh, I feel bad for this guy, but it's a rite of passage. Well, you can see everybody in front of you, like all these field guys who know this engineer, they're all smiling at you, right? And they're all just like grinning, like, oh, this. This guy, he's, he's, he's new, he's young, he's clean cut, he's from Denver. What the hell is he doing out here, right? And uh, awesome. And it was, it was funny because he kind of bamboozled me, right? And he kind of, and as soon as you show any type of weakness in those presentations, especially as a younger professional in oil and gas, I can say, uh, I know for myself, that experience and other experiences, as soon as you show any sign of weakness, uh, they'll eat it up, you know? And um, we all are trying to do well and everybody is good people in oil and gas for the most part, no doubt. But it was funny because I got bamboozled and I was kind of like stumbling on myself and my face was getting red and, uh, you know, had to show some humility and, but I learned from it after, yeah, after I laughed about it to myself and, you know, 
Uh, and I learned from it though, right? Like I'm not going to get stumped on this question or this question moving forward. I'm going to, and I told myself, look, you know more than what these people likely already know about exactly. your trade. Exactly. So go into it with confidence and, uh, you know, even if you don't know it, act like you do know it to that engineer and go back to him after and tell him, you know, how hey, you got me good, you know? <laughs> yeah. You know, it I is mean, one of the most frustrating things that I think we have to deal with is that in some places, I think even, especially in the, the hardware and the, the field-based stuff, there is an us against them mentality in some, you know, the, the field guys have a, at, I don't say a hatred, but a distrust of sales guys. So they always have a, you know, that some, they always want to tweak the sales guy. They, they want to do something with the sales guy like that. You know, it, it is kind of interesting that way. As soon as yeah. you tell them that you worked operations though, which is a good segue and to be able to relate to your, uh, your crowd. If you let them know that you worked operations for a while, you usually get a little bit of credibility, especially from that field uh, perspective. Um, so that always works in my, it worked in my favor to try to break ice with those guys. Right. So, yeah, man, I, I've got a, a question for you, sort of a, about, I guess people call it the energy transition and even ESG as we dig into that. <laughs> that would seem like some of what you're doing, right? I mean, making energy more efficient, uh, looking for lower cost ways to increase longer lasting energy production. Um, how do you think that uh, oil and gas fits into the sort of energy transfer and, and being in the seat that you're in, you know, talking to people who are at the well site? Um, what is the perspective of, of any sort of energy transition? Well, look, I think energy transit, that's a, that's a, we could go in circles on this question for a very long time, but from a oil and gas perspective, energy transition is inevitable, but I don't think it's going to happen like quickly and as quickly as people are pushing the narrative right now, because in order for everybody to continue to live a uh, cost-effective modern lifestyle like we do, uh, we have to produce oil and gas and artificial lift helps operators achieve the goal of producing wells until their depletion in order to afford, you know, that quality of life that we deal with on a daily basis. So getting into the industry, I didn't know anything about it and, uh, I didn't know much uh, as a whole, but now like taking like 10 years steps back, right. 10 years from when I started 12 years ago, um, now, you know, it's, 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 it's almost mind boggling to think how much we actually do contribute in a, in a very positive way uh, to society. Some people, you know, just go in oil and gas and do their job every day, but I take pride in being able to know that, you know, I help people achieve a quality of life at a cost effective manner. Transition is going to happen. It's not going to happen quickly. I think, you know, solar, wind, it doesn't contribute enough uh, to our grid efficiently enough yet to substitute oil and gas. So, um, yeah, I mean, that, that's what I would, my comments would be on that. Yeah. And you know, it's, it's interesting to, to see where, where it's ultimately headed. Cause I think we're just seeing things like natural gas be used for more and more things. So uh, I'm not, I'm not overly concerned about the industry going away. I do think that the, the narrative and the rhetoric is is out there and, and has been for some time, but it, I mean, it makes perfect sense. The oil and gas industry has done just a terrible job of marketing and branding itself uh, to the country as a whole. And it gets lumped in with shit like um, tobacco, which it shouldn't be because tobacco doesn't do any good for anyone. Couldn't agree Besides more. People that own tobacco plants. 
Yeah, I couldn't agree more with you, Funk. Uh, we've done. I think we're starting to do a better job of uh, educating the public. But we, I think so. I think that, so. That's got to be key moving forward um, because oil and gas is going to be prevalent for the next ten to twenty years, no doubt. And there's so many things that we can do. I mean, just even in the artificial lift, we just focus on that very specifically. There's so many things we can do in the design of our future artificial lift systems to keep emissions down now and extend the life of these wells because that ultimately is more efficient. You've got the same piece of pipe in the ground producing for 30 years instead of for 10. That's just that's just more efficient uh, use of the resources we've already taken advantage of. So I think you know artificial lift plays a big role in that and we can we can do it in a you know be more efficient emissions wise and economics to get these well, wells living longer and producing better and producing cleaner. Agreed. I mean, I just feel like generally speaking, the, the there hasn't been a lot of education, maybe in part because it's pretty complicated science, right? So, I mean, you're talking about getting way below the surface of the earth and, and extracting oil and gas that has been there for tens of millions of years, right? And, and finding the cleanest and most efficient way to do it. Um, it, it Inherently, if you don't understand it, you probably think it's bad. It scares you. So I think that there's a little bit of that. But having people like Luke on is a, is a, is fantastic. So Mr. Wallace, wanted to thank you for coming on the pod today. And um, best of luck with everything going forward, my man. The, the Uplift King. It's great <laughs> to have you, you on. Thank you so much for having me, guys. I really enjoyed it. <laughs>